that glimmer of hope that you referred to, I think, which is definitely there in the circumstances. I've got to take that and leverage it as much as I can, even though I may not, even though it may not work out. Chances are it won't, but there's no other alternative. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, and thank you for joining the Learning Future podcast. It's my delight today to be speaking again with Michael Fullen. Michael is the Global Leadership Director for New Pedagogies for Deep Learning and a worldwide authority on educational reform with a mandate of helping to achieve the moral purpose for all children. He's the former Dean of the Ontario's Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. And he has advised policymakers and local leaders all around the world to provide leadership in action. Michael received the Order of Canada in December 2012 and holds honorary doctorates from several universities in North America and abroad. Michael, thank you so much for joining us again today. And what I'm really excited to jump into is the new conception that you've been putting together around moving from the bloodless paradigm to the human paradigm. So so perhaps take us through the four different drivers as a starting point that you think are required for whole system success into the future. The first one is the foundational driver, the, the well-being and learning. And I think the the key, and I didn't say it so sharply in the report, but the key is about uh, uh, before 2015, 2014, I'll say, uh, mm-hmm. ill-being was sort of bopping around and people were saying, uh, yeah, we have to have programs to help mental health and other support for those that are really suffering. And so that came up, but it came up as uh, there's a problem here. If we can take care of it, we can get on with academics. And then after that, around 2014, which happened in Ontario, the uh, the premier who was, uh, I was advisor to the premier, the second premier that I was advisor to, uh, Kathleen Wynne, she had equity and um well-being as part of her framework of four things but had now equity had sorry well-being has graduated from ill-being to mm-hmm. well-being and is uh is sharing the kind of the uh the the billboard with uh with academic learning and then it's since then since i we've started to work on it with deep learning that i've now come to say it's really well-being and learning integrated and academic mm-hmm. is is a second order thing. And mm. uh, now what we've had with well-being is it's gone from not even in the picture, ill-being, to being in the picture as a partner, if only we could get it right, we could get better academics, to now the main driver. And it and it and it and it's embedded with learning. There's everything about the competencies, for example, uh, are really about learning. It's purpose and learning all brought up. So I'm pretty confident now that we almost could have a stranglehold on well-being, not as SEL, but as as purpose and learning for the 21st century, full stop. So that's, I think that's a powerful point of departure. And then it it becomes, uh, how do you treat academics, for example, and some of it, uh, I think there are are various people, and Sandra Milligan is one of them, uh, and LCA, for that matter, is very much on it, the little bit I know about it where you're really tackling that uh, upper secondary group 
and and repositioning um, well-being and learning over narrow academics. And and there's receptivity to that among a lot of powerful people. So mm-hmm. I think that's the that's the the part to tackle right now. And the the pandemic has helped because standardized tests have uh, been uh, put aside for the time being for at least two three years. And they and they're they're not readily coming back. So and so in that vacuum, I think we can get we need to get something where we don't see policymakers as the enemy, although some yeah. of them are, but we see them <laughs> as partners potentially and mm-hmm. and uh, taking the chance to re, refashion it. So I'm pretty strong on um, wanting to get well-being and learning centralized that way as being good at learning, good at life. And having um, having uh, academics play its role, and then I think the other uh, the middle two drivers are means to that uh, being that that agenda that is social intelligence can uh, can get better uh, better distance, and it's really the science of collaboration. It's it's uh, collaboration much more than uh, collaboration has started as collaborative cultures in schools, but is no longer that. Uh, it's cl- it's collaboration between uh, the entities, and you see in Australia there's more examples coming from uh, Irisha and uh, Tom Bentley and others that are yeah. more in the, more like it. Uh, but you don't see it. I'm just rambling a bit. You don't see it in New Zealand where they've had quite a few years of networks, but they've never been able to resolve how can I be a network. Uh, I mean, I the the networks in New Zealand are worried about the centre controlling too much. And the centre is worried about the uh, networks not doing very much, not having much focus. So they've had a stalemate for I don't know, fifteen years, and uh, they're not they're not breaking through it yet. So there's a whole question of trust and uh, levels of the system. But anyway, I do think that we can get the science of collaboration uh, and the uh, what I call social intelligence. I think um, the machine part. And I just saw another book coming out on artificial intelligence that's uh, uh, by a woman, not surprisingly, because all the good critiques seem to come from uh, you know more a less bloodless uh, kind of uh, source. Uh, mm-hmm. It's talking about how the harm that artificial intelligence has done in terms of uh, fine, you know, money, uh, impact, way people spend their time, how it's handled, all of that, even though we all agree that it's got some very important, powerful, positive roles, if the uh, first two drivers, namely well-being and learning and social intelligence, were the drivers, artificial intelligence and that technology can fall into a better role. So mm-hmm. I think uh, I'm just talking through now how the drivers come um, come through. It's so that, uh, that's, that, that was the second one of social intelligence. And then the third one, thanks to the uh, the, uh, the the half a dozen women's uh, uh, economists and Marianne Mazzucato is the best one, I think, in terms yeah. of uh, she's insisting on action and not underestimating action. She's tackling the repositioning of capital, not education per se. But I think there's a powerful uptake on that and even legitimacy now. Biden is investing his money that way. He's, his economic advisors are for that. Uh, and they're what to worry about is how you can sort out what kinds of investments are yielding capacity five, 10 years down the road, three years down the road, and what kinds are, and some of them have to be, uh, uh, I guess, crisis oriented, where you're literally 
enabling people to uh, you know be able to have enough food. So you you have some really basic things that have to be taken care of, but very part of that has to be this investment that starts to uh, uh, enable people to uh, do something worthwhile for themselves in their lives, and therefore uh, would be less, if I put it in financial terms, will be less cost to society and themselves. And in fact, the opposite of that, more benefit. And so the the wealth of nations, if you take that, and Miriam Azucados, this is actually how she puts it, she's not talking about uh, reducing the wealth of nations. She's talking about increasing it with redistribution so that it's a, it, it's a positive benefit of resources to, to the society. So I think, again, the difficult part is to make sure, uh, I would summarize it this way across the first three, to make mm-hmm. sure number one is the heart and soul of it, and number two and number three, that the three drivers are have some degree of uh, uh, whoever's dealing with them, some degree of how do we seed them cross connection and make them leverage them forward that way. And then the, the biggest one, the biggest problem I have then is with uh, with system one where I've tried to move it into subjective realm for some of that systemness, and that. Um, that still probably doesn't do it. It's still people think, oh, the system is that it's them, it's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, I love what uh, Dylan said in that video clip. I realized I am the system. I don't quite know what he meant by that, but it uh, sounds like it's on the right track. Mm-hmm. But I think what is interesting with COVID is that people now have a better, could have a better appreciate, appreciation of uh, systemness because. Uh, the countries that are doing well just by way of vaccination, they have better systems. They just have more competent. They're just more competent. They, yeah. they don't necessarily have really different values. They might. But I think the thing that stands out for people now, people with the vaccination, they can understand a good and a bad system. So I think I want, I'm talking more now when I talk to people and, and it's working well, that the number four one, the fourth one, is uh, the capacity of the system to be good at getting things done, whatever mm-hmm. they are. Now you can be good at killing people, so that's not what I mean, but to be good at what the, th- the agenda we're talking about in the first three drivers is really what we, that. so I think that's the way to get at systemness is that you have that, uh, that part of it. So it's coming, to get, it's gelling a bit more in my mind and I'm not sure uh, how different groups will take it up. I know it's resonating very well, as you implied, and you know I get that all the time and uh, mm. every two or three days of people working on it. And then the, uh, the, uh, the other thing you mentioned that really is hitting home people like the imagery of the bloodless paradigm and the human paradigm, they could immediately grasp the power of that. And, yeah. uh, and they can, uh, they, they, it brings the warmth back into mm. the uh, strategy basically. Michael, that's, I, I'm really taken by, um, but when you talk about changing a paradigm, to get system change, we have to change the system. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of that simple and that complex. But this idea also around when we look at social change movements and, you know, your colleague Santiago Ricon Gallardo talks about this. Um, but the idea there needs to be dissatisfaction at really every level of a system. And I, I wonder what your reflections are at this point. When, when you talk about the bloodless paradigm, you know, if al- almost anyone you talk to on the street right now has, has very serious complaints about education. 
And yeah. some of them are well-informed and others perhaps not as, as so. So there's certainly the dissatisfaction. And I think the contribution here of, of the four drivers for whole system success work as we're talking about, um, and the great paper, the leading education series from the Center for Strategic Education, is that it, it is a, a new, a very clear new narrative, as we might say, right? This is, here's the bloodless paradigm and here's the human paradigm. And this is why we need the human paradigm. And so I suppose my question then is, you know, all, all change starts with consciousness or awareness that it's required perhaps. How, what, what are the next steps? Um, and you and I have spoken previously about, you know, some networks of schools, for example, or districts that seem to be just so highly motivated, um, unreasonably so towards, you know, quite extraordinary work in supporting young people and all the humans in that human system. Um, where do we go from here? Like, what do you think is really required? You know, the idea of policymakers as partners that actually do want the best, but sometimes we're mm -hmm. all stuck, you know, in this paradigm, which actually doesn't serve anybody really at the end. Um, and and I, I do find quite compelling your case around austerity and inequality or all of the female largely female economists that you've actually cited in in the paper itself. What's what's required? You know, where, where do we start if, if this is a conversation that we're having? Um, the awareness, yeah. is this the narrative? Yeah. It's, and then it's, it's a question that I relate to very much because I, I not that I have a crystal clear answer, but I think it is the right question because it almost seems the conditions are so ripe for change and so much dissatisfaction, it should be uh, possible just to get going. And uh, and so it's that's where you can uh, start to worry, I guess I want to say. But I, I would say it this way, uh, and I just did a op-ed for the Toronto newspaper, which I don't know whether they'll accept. But I, the the theme of it is uh, the biggest problem we have is the lack of political leadership. On um, and that's an easy thing to say, an easy thing for people to agree with. Mm -hmm. uh, but I but then I started to talk about the sources for change. And I said, there's mu there's much more powerful sources for change at the at the local or bottom level than there is above that, and at the middle level than there is above that. And then uh, and so you've got this inverted uh, uh, mm -hmm. direction of influence where the bottom and the middle want change more than the top seems to. And so if you start with that, uh, then uh, then I think uh, you don't expect the top to lead system change in the short run. Mm. Uh, so the, in that sense, I wouldn't take a rational implication from my paper and say, okay, policymakers, get going and start passing those policies that invest in the first three. I think that's too superficial. I think I would want to, uh, I would want to find some ways of investing in the, in the bottom and the middle and then um, keeping track of its evolution and then um, really, uh, I don't know what to say about the top other than to uh, not wanting to give them the mandate for system change mm. in, in the first. I, I think if there's, if there's enough discussion, enough change, 12 minutes now from now, you might get uh, leaders who represent what we're talking about. And then they will be more likely the leaders that are going to lead it because what leading it means is creating um, it, it really means uh, creating 
the ability of the other two levels to do many things, including pressure on them that will be part of the part of doing it. But it's really uh, almost saying, "All right, you want change? Here's here's going to be some license to do it, but you have to do it interactively with others at your level and other levels to do that." And so maybe some of the uh, maybe we'll get some leaders like that that. Uh, after this uh, swath of bad leadership, let's say for the last uh, 10 years, uh, 12, 10 to 12, 20, uh, sorry, 20, 10 to 12, 20, or 21, 22, is pretty much a wasteland in terms of the leadership. But maybe this, you know, what I'm trying with this paper is to push the right levers that there'll be more uh, uh, assertiveness at the other two levels that will lead to a breakthrough of multiple level leadership. But it's not, it's, it's not, uh, I, I don't have a clear formulation of it. I'm, I'm interested in the, it seems to me one of, the, one of the challenges is an obsession on just the improvement paradigm. I mean, I think most of us would agree that improvement is good as a general concept, but if we're improving in the wrong things against the wrong aspects, you know, like, you know, where we've set ourselves on a, whatever, a journey towards 2030, and this is what we want, and we're going to measure it in this way. Um, it seems like improving within the current paradigm is far less important. In fact, it might even be a complete underutilization of, of um, resources and time than moving between paradigms. And of course, that's, that's a difficult thing to do because one must move through particular particular stages of cognitive dissonance. You know, I used to believe this, now I believe this, for example. Um, what, what would you say, where have you seen, or what, what, what do you think the most effective way is to, to shift our own minds, to, to, to change the paradigm itself, um, beyond, you know, having awareness? What, what's, what is the key, do you think, to unlock systems in terms of being able to tr self-transform um, against sometimes the inertia that of, of, exist, mm -hmm. of the existing paradigm? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've sparked something, but it's a minor thing, but still worth mentioning. You know that Vivian Robinson uh, did a book on mm -hmm. uh, more improvement, less change, uh, because she was saying improvement gets lost and all this stuff about change. Uh, what you're saying is, uh, is more transformation and less improvement as the, as the lens. And I think that's a good way of putting it. I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, because if if a lot of the uh, immediate fixes, let's say around capacity building, tend to go towards increasing the capacity to do better on visa or something like that, narrow. Yeah. And uh, and that's not what is meant. So I think we, uh, and, and I do have a couple of slides where I, I basically say uh, the transformation of the system, the the the, the purpose of public education needs to be radically transformed, the purpose. Mm. And that so far it's been on the receiving end of a bad society. And now it has to be a leader of creating a good society. So I think mm. we have to jerk ourselves out of the improvement paradigm, the way you've used it, which may be uh, you know, one step backward so you can go three steps forward. And uh, I, it's not a bad way of putting it, actually. It's provocative to say improvement, uh, I, I don't know, 
improvement is the enemy of something, whatever we have, whatever we finish that sentence. Mm. But it's a good thought. I'll have to work I'd on it some more. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that. I mean, I've spoken with Valerie Hannon for this podcast as well. And, and she, I think, is just a, a fierce communicator and advocate. And she uh, really, it's all about educational philosophy. What is the purpose of school? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the better question to be asking, particularly at this moment in time where we see just an explosion of, men, of mental ill health um, and other well-being challenges, you know, alongside all the other economic and public health challenges that the pandemic has unearthed. So, and of course, there's an opportunity in this moment, which I'm concerned all of us, myself included, may not fully seize the, the opportunity to really build back better, um, as one of the sayings goes, you know, some of the, uh, our work through the World Innovation Summit for Education, Michael, for example, you know, education disrupted, education reimagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the piece that I add, education remade, because it's, the, it's in the remaking and not necessarily the reforming of the same material is not, I think, what, what's at stake here. It has to be the, again, this is, these are just lovely words, but the transforming into, into something that is completely new at the economic, ecological, and educational levels, you know, as a start, if we are really to um, leverage our own partnership, uh, our own potential as a species, alone as individuals and, and the collective. I don't know there's a yeah. lot in that, Michael, but this is what I'm trying to work out myself is how people, everyone, the vast majority of human beings are well-intentioned, particularly if they're working in education. Uh, parents, incredibly well-intentioned, want the best for their children. And yet we all somehow become obstacles to the change we, we actually seek and the change we need. And mm-hmm. there's something just really interesting in that. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to uh, one of the uh, people that got excited by the paradigm is a woman who works in, um, in an alternative school within a tough district in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And so she deals with a lot of students that are... Uh, alienated from school that's her that that's her class in a sense and she said that the system is doing them enormous harm because of academic obsession Mm. but they're well-intentioned and it's like the students and the system are missing each other completely Uh, two ships passing in the night even Mm. though and she's basically saying they're operating from uh, you know their valid systems but their valid systems are not the ones that Need, are needed to get together. So I don't, maybe the language, and I like, uh, you know, instead of sa- saying uh, build back bre- better, mm. you you might want to say something, I'm paraphrasing you now, come back with something better. Mm. Come back with something different. Don't build back, but come back. And then you get into the transformation of that. And it, it is, you know, I mean, it goes back to Machiavelli, even his, uh, if you just strip away his, you know, the attributes that people have about him as thinking of, uh, you know, how to, how to maximize the uh, evilness of leadership. He actually wasn't about that. But if you take his main fundamental point was where he says there are a lot more people at the beginning of a transformation that are in favor of the status quo because that's what they're used to. And those that might like the alternative are weaker a, because they're not very confident yet, and B, because they really don't know what they want because they haven't formulated it in practice fully. 
they have inklings, they have direction, but the but the the status quo has a well formulated grounded system that's yeah. understandable and easy to defend if you want to defend it. Whereas the new thing is harder to defend because it's not operational, and so you have to get you have to get uh, you know the uh, seeing you have to get the versions of it in practice for it to have some traction. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the remake, and uh, and maybe it's maybe it's spending two or three years getting a lot of examples of what would be called remake, and uh, then uh, knitting those together as a breakthrough of the system after there are more examples of it around. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm optimistic about this. I think in in my experience, people people know but we still perform within the current um, parameters, perhaps. Um, and I, I really love your reflections on leadership as well, Michael. I really think if, if there's ever been a moment in time, I mean, the moment for great leadership has always been now, <laughs> always, mm-hmm. been, <laughs> always, but there's just something about the disruptive nature of this, which means the kind of door is ajar. There's kind of light streaming in, perhaps. Um, I'd love you to to share about measurement in particular, because I think one of the things that's holding the status quo so strongly is how we manage what gets measured. And it's often um, attributed to Drucker, um, but it's actually, you know, I've Googled, there's an academic called VF Ridgeway, 1956, says what gets measured gets managed, even when it's pointless to measure and manage it. And even if it harms the purpose of the organization to do so. And I just think that's a really interesting insight. You know, yeah. the idea what's, of like, what's his surname? Ridgeway, an academic. 56. How do you spell it? R-I-D-G-W-A-Y. And I just okay, think it's, yeah. you know, yeah, and so, great, and, I, yeah, that's yeah. I think that's that's great. And I and I think the um I I mean I think the dilemma is for leadership and all of this is you actually don't get uh, things better by getting more precise at measuring it. Uh, you, as just as that comment makes that you get, you get things better paradoxically by focusing on quality implementation around your, your values in that. And then, you know, and then by the way, you can see when it's successful, but you're not really making, you're not really, um, making the measurement any any driver whatsoever. So the part of the trick, and I didn't say it in the paper, is stop thinking of assessment of outcome as a driver and think of it as a natural outcome and that what mm. you want to be is transparent. You, what you, what you want to be is transparent about it and specific about it. So it's not like you're hiding it or yeah. ignoring it. You actually are forcing the specificity, but not for purposes of outcome for the purpose of clear, uh, clarifying what should be done to make it stronger. Mm. So, so getting people to shift that, uh, that improving the, uh, you know, making the system better is the goal, not getting and, and out better outcomes are a distant byproduct. Yeah. It sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, some of Bertrand Russell's reflections around um and frankly, actually, you know, somewhat differently, Viktor Frankl's, 
the idea of chasing something and how it's impossible to you know, happiness is a great example. You know, when, yeah. when we talk about everyone being happy, like we want everyone to be happy. I don't, I don't agree. I mean, happiness is good, but what we want happiness is an, it ensues from a meaningful life in, in the words of Viktor Frankl. And mm-hmm. Bert, Bertie Russell says the same thing about success. If you chase success, it's impossible to actually become successful. What you, what you should chase is something far more purposeful and meaningful and success yeah. will then ensue rather than be the concept that is pursued by default. And I, I think that's, that's a really interesting piece when we look at you know, outcomes or data-driven um, systems, mm-hmm. whereas I'm, I guess you would imagine much more of an evidence-informed kind of <laughs> human. And we need to you know, add innovation in there as well as a way to discover what is an unknown unknown um, potentially. For yeah, I think what you've, what you've uh, stimulated me to do, I want to have, uh, we have great conversations with uh, Jean Clinton, who's on our team. She's a neuroscientist. Fabulous, uh, yeah. And, uh, and I, might, I will have a discussion with her. And uh, there's another colleague that's great at this, a guy named Stephen DeGroote, about uh, we know what their philosophy is. We know it lines up with what this is. And what do they do about, uh, my question to them, the conversation will be, what do you about, do about measuring success? Mm. Uh, like, how, how do you think about measuring success? And then I think from that conversation, we will get um, indicators of success that are more convincing uh, than, uh, you know, the measures of a standardized test or any of those mm. things. And maybe we will figure way of uh, bypassing overt measures and ending up with better, but still understandable measures. Mm. So it's, uh, but that, I think that's properly identified as a block in the, in the passage. Another guy who thinks a lot about this, but doesn't, doesn't actually have the same, you know, the comments we're looking for is Jal. Do you know Jal Meta? No, I've heard the you, name. Yeah. You should get to know him. Uh, his uh, surname is M-E-H-T-A, so it's uh, Meta. And he's a sociologist at Harvard, probably about 10 years into his career, so mid-career. Mm-hmm. And he wrote uh, really a couple of great books, two great books, in fact, as a young sociologist. One was, uh, uh, it was about the, uh, uh, he's the one that said, uh, when he looked at how accountability was failing, he said what pol- policymakers are doing at the back end with tougher measures, they should have done at the front end with capacity building. So his, uh, his whole analysis is about that. And it's, uh, it's a great book. And then he did a second book in search of deep meaning where they showed where they went around the country to looked at schools that supposed to, supposedly were examples of deep meaning, but there's, there's hardly any of it. That's why he called his book in search of deep meaning. But then he began to found examples of it on the periphery, he called it, which is after hours clubs or, or mm. in sports or sometimes a drama club and in the, and the, and the odd classroom. But they were truly exceptions to which everything else was governed by the academic obsession. He didn't use that word. But he said, if you, uh, if you want to get a rich interview, I'm glad to introduce you to him. Uh, he's That's wonderfully incredible. thoughtful and really one of the good guys. Yeah. Because, uh, of course, the argument here is that let's just get rid of all testing, all assessment. The argument is 
how do we use it as an enabling, as an enabling factor for human, true human growth and development and move beyond the academic obsession, as you phrase it, or, you know, the primacy of the cognitive might be another way of putting it, you know, and, you know, build in the, the other dimensions of who we are as, as people, you know, the social and the emotional, and you can add to that the physical and the spiritual. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, we just have so much, so much emerging insight even the vitality factors, the science of sleep, nutrition, movement, mm -hmm. uh, and yet they they are not part yet of the way that we've designed systems for growth and development or systems for performance. A workplace, for example, is another great example. You know, I, I remember John Medina's great book, Brain Rules, and he said, well, he said quite compellingly, if we wanted to design an anti-performance environment for the brain, we would create a cubicle in an office. <laughs> Or we'd put a child sedentary at a single desk facing one direction, as opposed to you know moving across the desk. Uh, it's just it's interesting how we got here, um, mm -hmm. and of course it's more interesting how we how we move ourselves forward or remember as well as invent. Because um, I think there is, I mean, I, I think about the indigenous traditions of Canada, where you are in Australia, where I am, and there, I mean, there's so much in terms of the. the dissolving the separation and understanding the holistic nature of our of of community at one level but also of being within an ecological environment and and learning how to live sustainably um there's certainly there are those traditions that we should just listen more to perhaps as, as we seek to create mm -hmm. the change that matters maybe yeah well i think it, i think we could go make some uh progress on uh, indicators of well-being i mean we, it's it's actually uh, not a conceptual problem so mm -hmm. much it's not even a measurement problem and there's uh you know we you certainly and that's where i think the answer is shifting from the standardized test which is wrong driver number one to well-being and learning wrong driver number two and i think that's the kind of thing that sandra milligan is striving for and that several others of us so if you can, if we can come up with credible measures mm. of well-being and learning, which shouldn't be impossible, should not be impossible, uh, and should be feasible, then and a lot of people are, um, you know, moving around on it. We, you know, we had discovered these one of our actually one of the eight schools that I told you about, these uh, Big Spirit uh, school district is uh, Louisville, Kentucky. It's, uh, mm. it's called Jefferson County is the name of it, but it's in Louisville. And they have, and nobody, nobody particularly helped them. They have all of their grade five, grade eight, and grade 12 students, 100% of them, uh, give at the strategic parts of the year accounts of what they've learned using a framework to a group of, of, of three or four peer teachers. Te all teachers are involved in the peer assessment system. And I've, I've observed... Uh, virtually a few of these uh, they're a half hour each and they went run through a lot of them and it just mobilizes the teachers into the engagement it has the students articulating this and they're not even going deep deep they're just really making more explicit what they're learning so and it's a perfectly manageable system because they're doing it with a lot of benefit mm. but it takes it takes a certain effort to uh, commit to it but the but the every one of the people I talk to, regular teachers, are saying this is so much night and day compared to what we did before. So with that kind of thing, I think 
it will at some point add up and converge and, and break through. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is why working on the different pieces separately as well as together can uh, start to uh, build the, uh, you know, whoever it was that said the jet plane came because so many different parts were in, independently, uh, you know, developed, not for that necessarily that purpose. And then they were brought together at strategic times and the whole was different than what was imagined to start with. And and I think that's the way I see this. Uh, that, And I'm trying to put pressure on it by thinking of it as, I love the moonshot analogy, even though yeah. Azucado has claimed it first with the capital, but that's a good image because you can, it's a, it's a, a really powerful goal. It's, you know, it's aspiration that doesn't look like you can make it. Uh, and you've got a 10 year period. So, it's, you know, it's not like uh, it doesn't have to be done tomorrow, but it's not 50 years away and that you can really mobilize around it. So I think that's another way of thinking about is uh, to get the mobilization of more and more people who are uh, not going to come up with the solution within one or two years, but are going to work in the direction. And maybe in year seven, there, there you start to see connections that really multiply them. Yeah. I mean, that's why I would think about it. I like that a lot, Michael, and the moonshot analogy as well. Uh, and the idea of, or even the jet plane, you know, why create a jet? You need someone that can imagine the concept of flight, you know, or that it's feasible or possible. The idea mm-hmm. is the optimist creates the aeroplane and the pessimist creates the parachute. Um, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting way of thinking about the work that we all do. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder, um, Michael, in the last couple of kind of reflections, um, the idea that, you know, the peer, as that's a great example, the peer you know, co- collaboration that's happening in that particular district, like in many others, at some point, someone said, why don't we do it this way? And I'm so interesting, I'm interested in that moment because of course, when something is established into an organizational culture, you know, and, and you walk into it, people say, oh, this is just what we do here in Louisville. This is just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And that's such a powerful position. Um, but the idea of the, the moment, the kind of spark at which people can see a possibility and then act towards it uh, is something that really is, I think, deeply connected to agency or and actually connected as, as much to the effective state as well as the cognitive state, you know. If, if science mm-hmm. was enough, if evidence were enough, we would not have some of the challenges that we currently have in our world. So what would you say from all of the decades of work and the 50 plus books and the amazing contributions you continue to make, be it the six C's and deep, you know, new pedagogies for deep learning or anything else, what, what if you step back, do you see as the, the moments in time or those, those golden threads that are required, the preconditions, um for you know the moonshot to actually work for us to get to the destination uh well it's um you know in in some ways the big variable is context which is uh you know what's society like for chunks of time and so if i just take my own uh, 50 years it was pretty um i guess i'll say um dull uh, between 19 uh, when I started 1968 to the end of the century and then there were uh, I wrote a, a, an article for the Journal of Educational Change 
was uh, something about uh, the rise of post-system reform was in 2000. And so uh, from two, uh, because it was right on the heels of England's big uh, literacy numeracy strategy that started just before that in 96, 97, 1996, 97. So we have a fairly stable period. And then we have a shot at, uh, you know, big change, which is literacy numeracy. Uh, we piled on in Ontario in 2003. And then that round of, ran, did some good things uh, and it ran out of gas around 2010. And then we went into another funk from 2010 to 2021. That last 11 years have been uh, declined. So, so, I mean, I'm just thinking out loud when I say it that way, because in each case, there was a certain context. I wouldn't say the context caused it, but it certainly re was reflecting, reflecting it. So there's something about context that causes uh, nothing to happen or the wrong thing to happen or possibly the right thing to happen. And uh, that's why I'm saying in 2022 or 2021 that there's something in the air now. And given the, the paper that I did for, uh, you know, formulates it that way that, and then COVID makes its contribution by sweeping everything, uh, you know, upside down. So there's, there's something going on now. And then the climate change and all of these things that potentially heading towards another uh, you know, big bout of uh, massive ex extinction of, of, of plant life and climate and people. So there's there's really, uh, it, and I I read the evolutionist, uh, the you know Wilson and uh, E.O. Wilson has written some mm -hmm. great books from a biology point of view about the ups and downs of evolution and what does it take. So there's something I guess I want to say is magical about this, magically bad or magically good. And that I have a feeling that we are on the tail end of a magically bad that was being increasingly magically bad since 2010. Mm. And, uh, and, and now there's the possibility of snapping out of it in the next phase. Mm. So that's, Michael, that's kind of a Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. Last question for you. Um, I mean, that I want to ask now because I have always a hundred more. <laughs> yeah. um, what's what's the take home message? What what do, what do you want to leave people with? Uh, the main message is uh, whether you like it or not, there's radical change about to happen. Uh, you don't have a choice. You can't stop it. It's going to happen, and that's for sure. So you can either be befuddled, which I don't mind. You know, I can understand. Uh, you or you can say maybe there, and this is where the you know the the hope comes in. Uh, that may and I've changed my attitude towards hope. We used to say hope is not a strategy, but I'm now saying experienced hopefulness, experienced hopefulness. Oh, nice. Has has the uh, the little uh, taste of uh, of uh, of being a hopeful strategy, and I think that's it's. It's the combination, the complexity of everything, the probability that it won't work out, the fact that it is going to be hugely uh, different, and the little tiny possibility that humans can uh, make the best of it. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, one of my, uh, although it's sometimes hard to understand, there's a, uh, a complexity scientist in uh, Ontario and Canada. He was born in British Columbia. He was at U of T at University of Toronto. 
His name is Thomas uh, Homer Dixon, D-I-X-O-N. And he's written three books on complexity. And his uh, latest one, and it's I've, ref I've referenced it in, in the uh, driver's report, is called Command, Command, Commanding Hope, I think it's called. And he goes through all yeah. of the analysis to show why it is hopeless and why it's in that, and that the only glimmer of possibility we have is to get a leverage or a foot in the door of hopefulness and then move with it and it touch, it's touch and go whether that will happen. And so it's uh, it's it's a book well worth reading. It's uh, it's complex, but it's not hard to understand. In some ways, it's hard to understand what the solution is. And I'm, what I pulled out of it, and uh, I, I got to know him because he likes the right drivers, and uh, and I like his book. So we now are connecting mm -hmm. his team and our team. But uh, it's very much, I think, uh, the tackling the big uh, the big issue of system change, the way that Masakato wants to do it knowing that the odds are against you and still saying we've got to do it anyways and now where do i get my where do i get my foot in the door and where do we start to see some light and that i expect that we will i don't expect we will be successful but i expect i i, I conclude i don't have a choice about what to do i've got to i've got to take the openings that glimmer of hope that you referred to i think which is definitely there in the circumstances. I've got to take that and leverage it as much as I can, even though I may not, even though it may not work out. Chances are it won't, but there's no other alternative. Hmm. I experienced hopefulness. I really like as well. Uh, yeah, Michael, it's always a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. I love to you know, talk to you. I love your questions. They spark a lot many ideas that I get from you as you get from me, I'm sure. If you'd like to delve deeper into some of our conversation today, uh, please take a look at michaelfullen.ca uh, and you'll see there the paper that's actually downloadable for free called The Right Drivers for Whole System Success. It's really what we've been referring to in our, in our conversation, as the move from the bloodless paradigm to the human paradigm and what narrative we can all create together as educators, leaders, innovators, parents, so that we can ultimately create a better system for every learner and every human being in it. Thank you again for joining and we'll see you again. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.